Hello and welcome back to this free episode of TF. It it's is the free one. Me trying to bulldoze that bit from happening again. <laughs> you won't succeed. Uh, I'm on the side of some of the people on the Patreon now. I'm. I'm my mission is to kill the Never free one. Never take the side of the hogs. Well, n- now I found out that like people who are paying us are telling us not to do it. I want us to continue the bit more so than ever. Uh, I'm. I'm very much at the Patreon people. I think that we should. Um. We should. Uh, Return, uh, yeah, reject modernity, embrace tradition, which means we should bring back the intro, the classic yes. intro. Yes, yes, yes. So, a so, podcast so, about how. So, unless- <laughs> <laughs> that, that, that makes Riley physically hurt every time someone reminds him of that. Yeah, it's called Trad Future, actually. Yes. <laughs> it is, it's us. A podcast it's those- about how, it, unless we put all of our eggs in this big Corbin shaped basket, the future is and will be trash. <laughs> It's good though, right? I, I haven't. I've been asleep. I took a coma. Uh, no. Uh, before we get into any more uh, tomfoolery uh, and guest introductions and stuff, I have something mm. important to tell everybody. Uh, we have shirts. We have sweaters. Clothe your nakedness. Yeah. Mm. Uh, or or in, in in TF merch. Listen to the tree of knowledge and then clothe your nakedness. Cover your that shame. Is- that's right. At uh, least we the are... torso area of your shame. We don't sell yeah, pants it, yet. Are you looking to go full halal? Well, you can make a start on it with a TF <laughs> shirt and sweater. Yes, uh, we are selling uh, shirts that involve uh, respecting uh, the bin man and remembering when they were hard from mm. the Johannes Vonk tour of, uh, where was it? London, uh, Edinburgh, and Tristan de Cunha. Uh, yeah, Great Britain, Northern Ireland, and Tristan de Cunha. Yeah, that's yeah. the one. Uh, and also, we are selling uh, some... Uh, some sweaters uh, that we found in Jerk Vanderklerk's uh, old uniform storage for his private military company. <laughs> yeah, we found them yeah. in an old footlocker filled with shoe polish. Yeah. Uh, donated to us by friend of the show, Simon Mann, who yeah. said he had loads of them in his garage. <laughs> no, we've, we've looted them all and now we're over encumbered. So please, somebody buy these from us so we can move again. Uh, we are taking pre-orders until the 17th of November at noon UK time, at which point we will be sending them off to the printer to be printed. So please yeah. order now. Yeah. Yeah. If you're uh, listening to this, order it immediately. <laughs> uh, so with, with all that being said, uh, I now want to take a moment to introduce our guest. Uh, we are speaking with uh, Phil Jones, who has written Work Without the Worker, uh, which is available now on Verso, which is a very interesting tome on uh, micro work automation and exploitation. Phil, how's it going? Yeah, pretty good. Thanks for having me on. Looking forward to talking about my uh, quite depressing book. Hmm. What? That's are, not in our idiom. Who are playing with they tome? Uh, Ooh. That is right. Not just playing but, with they tome, but studying it. Yeah, that is right. <laughs> we have uh, a fair few things uh, to get through uh, first. Um, also, I, I assume everyone here got their invitations to the uh, LSE class war meeting. Of course. Uh, it is at the High Holborn Police Station at, uh, <laughs> just after quitting time in the locker room. Yeah, I, mm. I, I, love, I love to get together with my fellow anarchists and proceed to ambulate in a northwesterly direction to the location yeah. of the vicinity of the premises, where I will throw a, a, a lithographic uh, rock-style projectile into the vicinity of the area of Zippy Hotter Valley. Yeah. 
yeah. you yourself and a gentleman and the ladies were meeting in a non-hierarchical fashion in the vicinity <laughs> of the premises. Is that correct? And uh, there was a, uh, a, a, a flat sphere, a circle, if you will, that specified who was going to uh, perform operations on the dishes that day. At which point there was uh, an altercation broke out with a number of members of the party, <laughs> which I bore witness to myself, along with PC Davies, as uh, they were unable to come to an agreement of sorts about uh, the correct progressive nature of their politics. Is that right? Uh, so, for those of you who are wondering what the fuck we're talking about, uh, the, don't uh, mind me. I'm just standing yeah. around with my jean jacket, which has two safety pins that allow me to hold it like it's a stab vest with my thumbs inside we're, it. Just we're all about. wearing different North Face down jackets. We're all wearing boots with our jeans tucked into them. All of us have gotten short back and sides since the last recording. My Blackberry yeah. doesn't even work with LTE data, but I still have it in a holster on my side. <laughs> Yeah, so, uh, to fill everyone in on what has happened... Uh, there was the, a scuffle. Uh, there have been some yes. scuffles with the Israeli yes. ambassador to the UK. Yes, uh, so uh, Zippy Hodavelli, who is the Israeli ambassador to the UK, gave a speech at the London School of Economics. She was invited to speak. Uh, she spoke for the full allocated time, and she was protested as she was leaving. Uh, the protest, which was described by British journalists as swarming the car, was basically people booing her from behind a police line. But for some reason, every single person in the UK who has a uh, po politics or media job, when they looked at that clip, which we all looked at, they saw people swarming a car and mm. threatening her with violence. Yeah. And they and basically said this was, this was deliberate, deliberately insulting the memory of Kristallnacht, which was, there was the, the anniversary of it. But like, and also, and it's, yeah, it's anti-Semitic to protest not only the Israeli ambassador, who is you know, an ambassador, but also uh, Zippy Hotzvelli in particular, wildly racist, even for uh, an Israeli politician. One of the interesting things about this story is that Zippy Hotzvelli is actually very controversial even within Israel because she's so extremely right-wing. Mm -hmm. And I mean, for example, that she not only endorsed, there's, a, there's a, an anti-miscegenation group called Lahava that it, it, I believe the, the Hebrew word means flame, but basically it's they, they not, not just advocate to uh, to prevent mixed religious marriages in Israel, they also uh, do street gang shit and harass people. Hmm. She has not only endorsed them; she has actually invited them to speak in the Knesset. So, like to say this is a controversial figure even within Israel is is not an overstatement. But apparently, uh, both parties and major parties in Britain are are unified on the topic that any criticism of the ambassador of the state of Israel is hmm. by default motivated only by anti-Semitism and also Jeremy Corbyn's fault somehow. Yeah. Well, ironically, the only harm the Israeli ambassador came to while she was in the UK was when she went on a night out with Andrew Tate. And you know what? She should have taken him to a better club. That's all I'll say about that. Uh, it plays fair. It doesn't so, bring ethnicity into it. So Kira Starmer uh, said, again, just everyone watched the same video of her yes. leaving LSE she, and like, kind of hurrying so, into her car, which drove away normally while yeah, holding fucking she, flowers. She's, she's like being like ushered to her car while there is a line of about 30 police officers and then uh, some people shout at her. No one touches the car, no one interferes with the car in any way. The car proceeds uh, in, a, like a, in a convoy away from the vicinity of the location of the premises. Uh, yeah, this has been possessed by a cop. <laughs> yeah, not for the first time. Um, <laughs> but like, yeah, no, you would think that, you know, there had been windows broken or, you know, some sort of, you know, security threat and it just... It, it, it makes you feel insane because you watch the video and it's just not there. Well, I mean, I, I recall when um, when labor, vile labor activists violently assaulted Matt Hancock's aide and then video came out and a guy, Pamir 
kind of slightly brushed against the guy and then the guy he brushed said hey fuck you and that was it mm-hmm. but we were all told that this was this was evidence of a of a, a mm-hmm. violent assault upon the state uh so once again the, the general rule in british politics is your li- your eyes are lying you they are deceiving you do not believe them uh, if you if you speak out against this, you are racist. And also, not only are you racist, but you're racist in the worst way. The only way that matters in Britain, which is anti-English racism. The British media are all Cartesian skepticists. <laughs> oh, no, no. The British media fully have occupied... They have being John Malkovich into... I think ever since Gordon Brown said that bigoted woman about uh, Gillian Duffy, the, the British media and political ecosystem has basically being John Malkovich into the brain of like an aged country club racist from Maidenhead and just inhabits all of their collective paranoias and delusions. Mm. Like they are all living in a fantasy. Well, it's like, it's also a really good example of like the kind of, well, we all, we all kind of knew this anyway, but like for there was, there's like a certain like group of, you know, uh, sort of centrists who kind of present the line of like, you know, you can be like anti-Israel, you can like protest against the Israeli government and like, you know, not be anti-Israel or like not be anti-Semitic. And like, you know, I, I think there are kind of like, lots of loaded things in there but even if you took that at face value this is like evidence that that's just simply not true like yeah that's just very, gone that's is, dead now it, it, it is very much like even if you sort of protest the most right-wing ethno-nationalist like um you know israeli minister and like bear in someone mind, like, who's who's genuinely right, received and, protest and outcry in israel from israelis mm-hmm. and, and if, if you do that protest in the most civilized manner possible waiting 90 minutes while she gives the speech <laughs> comes out with a load of flowers and then go Hey, I don't like your policies very much because yeah. I think you're Down a bit with racist. This sort of thing. Down with this. If you do a rally to restore sanity outside of a fucking. <laughs> 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 Well, then look, yeah. yeah, no, the state will absolutely crush you, and that's yeah. uh, as the, as they should because you are you are uh, prejudiced. I, I kind of wanted to say one more thing very quickly, which was like. I kind of like the way that this has sort of been done. I feel like in a lot of ways, we're sort of talking about the wrong thing. I don't think anyone really gives a shit about the student protesters. What, like what people are really fixated. Yeah. Well, yeah. Besides from the police, what people are really fixated on by people, I mean, kind of like the people on Twitter and columnists and so on is the video itself and how like people respond to the video. So I think for them, it's very much like they are trying to perform in the right way. Um, in order to kind of like signal much broader contentions about what they kind of consider to be the student left, the Corbyn left, and so on, right? Mm. Um, so for them, it's very much like, no, this video is a representation that like Corbynista students still exist. And in the same way that we have to get rid of them from the Labour Party, we also have to get rid of them in every other type of public institution as well. So, and therefore incentivizing this type of like facetious and quite frankly, like, and like observably incorrect statements about what happened. Uh, well, uh, we've also seen both Priti Patel and Keir Starmer tweet about this, and Keir Starmer has entered full deputy head mode because his tweet is simply, "This is totally unacceptable. Intimidation and threats of violence will not be tolerated." But I want to point one thing out, and then I want actually I, I, Riley's going to turn it over to Phil. Uh, well, the thing I want to say is it's very funny for Starmer to to come out basically immediately decrying this and suggesting that one can't protest someone even as controversial as Hodavelli because Sippy Hodavelli's politics basically imply to Keir Starmer they, 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 they communicate if, if her politics were brought to reality Starmer's marriage would be illegal because he is a Gentile married to a Jewish woman so and, and Keir Sir, Sir Keir Starmer QC there's easier ways to get divorced man I'm telling you <laughs> <laughs> but I, uh, before we move Welcome, on I want to ask uh, Phil what's your whole sort of evaluation of this as you've sort of seen it unfold it's kind of crazy. I mean, it's, it's either, either sort of through malfeasance or ignorance 
our political classes usually have decided to back a sort of this hardline kind of support of the annexation of Palestinian land. And I know she's the ambassador, but that in itself is quite extraordinary. She rejects like Palestinian claims to any part of the West Bank or Gaza. Um, she's not the sort to even make sort of vague, empty concessions to some kind of two-state solution, which as far as I can tell is still the UK government's official position. Um, so why, why, why are all of our political class treating as if she's some kind of moderate who's been the victim of an extreme attack? Well, I mean, it's, it's because the most, accept, the most acceptably left position you can have is the British government's position, which will negotiate rightwards with her position. And I suppose the most the sinister reason, perhaps, is, you know, at least from the perspective of someone like Patel, it's another opportunity to clamp down on kinds of protests that she doesn't deem sufficiently docile. Mm. Yeah. Well, something that I think is interesting is seeing the protests decried by Labour Friends of Israel when Hodavelli's position is that there is no such thing as a two-state solution that they should annex the entirety of the occupied ter- territories and expel all Palestinians. That that is, I'm not making that up. That's not libel. That's not exactly. meaning facetious or exaggerating. Her politics is expel all Palestinians to Jordan. She's very open about this. So effectively, Labor Friends of Israel all, and and similar you know advocacy groups in the United Kingdom from the Labor Party are basically. Uh, telling their potential voters and supporters to fuck off in support of someone who does not, who basically is to the right of their own position. Well, it, it's in support of comedy. It's in support of uh, of being polite. They're, sure. in fact, they're, they don't care about the position. They just care about the politeness, which actually leads me to want to go on to our uh, next. Yeah, go ahead. Next item, uh, which is before we uh, before we get into the rest of this, uh, I also wanted to talk quickly about the sort of aftermath of the Tory Sleaze stuff, the Owen Patterson things, Jeffrey Cox. Uh, where uh, Owen Patterson, having quit the party now, uh, has provoked a, uh, a, sort of a, a bunch of journalists to say, ah, it's time to investigate Tory Sleaze. Tory Sleaze is going to be a big problem. Recent polls that come out after Owen Patterson, they're down like two. They're still in the lead. Yeah. Uh, but right. also, what they need uh, to do is was... dump a bunch more shit into all of the rivers to get that five yeah. point bump again. That will yeah. trigger the libs. Uh, and uh, Sebastian Payne wrote in, in the Financial Times, uh, yes. in one sense, the checks and balances worked. Johnson's efforts to scrap the whole standard system to save Patterson failed, and the Court of Parli- Public and Parliamentary Opinion did for him. Sebastian Payne. Which, which check or balance, <laughs> other than just the Conservatives making a political calculation based on what they could get away with? The Sebastian Payne barely getting those words out with his mother's breast milk dribbling down <laughs> his chin, <laughs> adju- adjusting his little bow tie, as he says, in many ways, the checks and balances worked. But also, there is a great fury... Uh, he goes on over Sir Jeffrey Cox, who earned nearly a million pounds last year. By the way, a guy used to be like a, a hero of the um, uh, 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 libs for being disbarred. Well, those royalties attorney, he gets for inventing the penis. Attorney General <laughs> uh, for legal work from the British Virgin Islands. He basically worked like against the British government on behalf of a tax haven. Hmm. Uh, and this has huh. caused a whole furor over now MPs having second jobs and has provoked a spate of articles saying, uh, ah, if they're only paid £85,000 a year, how do you expect them to live on that? Childcare is so expensive. In fairness, going to the British Virgin Islands to defend their, their tax status, it's like the third or fourth least evil reason you could uh, <laughs> go to the British Virgin Islands as an MP. Yeah, I'm sure also if childcare is that expensive, there's plenty of people knocking around Parliament who'd agree to look after your kid for free. Yeah, yeah <laughs> also, there's plenty on the British Virgin Islands also. <laughs> but also, yeah. hey, why is childcare expensive? Phil, I'm going to kick it to you to get your reaction, but there's one thing that I want to say that just doing the math, I was taking the bus to come up here this morning or yesterday morning, and I just wanted to see the, you know, um, income percentages, like what, 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 what percentage of earners you would be in, what percentile you'd be in on that income. 
And it was funny to me because, I mean, the, the, the stats may be inaccurate, but from what I could tell, 82,000 pounds a year would put you well into the top 5%, if not higher. And then obviously with that augmented income, these people are absolutely into the top 2 to 1%. Uh, and so to me, it was just like, like the idea of journalists and politicians both sort of being simpatico saying, how could you possibly live on this? It's like, I don't know, ask 19 out of 20 British adults who work, who earn less than that, how they manage. And it's like, if you can't answer that question, like what, what fucking planet do you live on? And I recognize like as not a, not a non-British person that maybe, you know, like that might sound funny coming from me, but like, I'm just looking at the math. I'm looking at the numbers. And it's like a lot of young people make a hell of a lot less. I remember seeing jobs that I was qualified for that wanted to pay me 16,000 pounds a year, which wouldn't have been enough for me to sponsor my wife's visa. And it's like, and that was a professional full-time job. Like, so the idea, like if the problem here is, is, oh, life in the UK is expensive. And it's like, yeah, I wonder why that is. And if people can't afford stuff, it's like, hmm, well, I wonder what the median income in this country is. And I don't know. It, once again, it's journalists and politicians more or less having this conversation with each other and like um, sort of like, like pinching each other's cheeks and fucking giving each other like supportive pats on the shoulder and not realizing that like nobody else thinks they live on the same planet because what they're describing as normal is not normal. Mm. So uh, Phil, before we carry on, I- could you sort of what what what's what's your sort of take on this stuff? Well, I said this this whole checks and balances stuff is kind of just a reassuring narrative, isn't it? It's kind of it's very similar to the you know the idea that um, the Tories are gradually going to destroy them the sort of public support through endless scandal, like a very comforting view. It's become it's become a kind of like liberal sanctuary. This idea that the Conservative Party will eventually kind of scandalise itself to death with every scandal, we see a sort of gradual chipping away of public support. There was absolutely no evidence, you know, for this really, is there? Well, the last time it's something like this, I always say the key to understanding the lab- like the labor right winning an election is John Major. You have to, through a policy that is directly attributable to you, embarrass the country in a slightly europhilic way. Mm. That's how to be win. And then you just have to be a labor party that's indistinguishable from the conservative party. And then that will enable people to vote for you. And like the idea that you know, people are going to suddenly turn on Sajid Javid from earning 150,000 pounds from like working for like 20 minutes a week with JP Morgan, working for 20 minutes a week in, in scare quotes here. Um, it, it just because they're like revolted with him, like it's completely, that's complete nonsense. Is he said it's good if regarding his second job where he earns 150K a year at JP Morgan? It's good to have experience that is not all about politics. It's for my constituents to judge, and I'm happy with that. And it's not though, because. Pretending that in a country of like hundreds of safe seats, it's for my constituents to judge is insane because British democracy is a poll of who reads which paper in which town. I also want to throw that in there too. That's always funny to me because it's like, yeah, it's my constituents decide. Also, they have no no way of selecting me or deselecting me. <laughs> and if they are, they want to vote for a different party, fine, yeah. throw away your vote. I got <laughs> fucking 40,000 Tory votes stacked up in this constituency. It's the same thing with me with my insane turf labor MP where I live. Like, it doesn't matter what she does or doesn't do. Like, unless labor completely wipes out because of like a computer glitch where you're not allowed to vote labor or something, she's going to win. She's going to keep her seed. Yeah. There is the, the just the the simple idea that that all of this is just well, it's the system working as intended and if I'm going to go uh, to you know, like work for, you know, bribes limited. <laughs> I mean, it sort of is working as intended. <laughs> oh, it is. Yeah. Yeah. Thing, it absolutely is. It's just that it is presented sort of day in day out as yep, this is thoroughly democratic. This is this is the best this is the best thing we could possibly do. Thank goodness we saw off any challenge to it. Mm. Um and of course uh, in 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 the uh, into this must all, of course ride Keir Starmer 
Um, who has number one? Number Threw one down these mean streets. A man must yeah, go exactly. who is not himself. Swerving, me. swerving a perfect one eighty in his SUV, knocking over delivery drivers left and right, <laughs> possibly over the donkey. blood alcohol content threshold. <laughs> Sir Keir Star- Keir Star- yeah, Sir Keir Starmer arrives. Yeah, and he's accused Starmer. <laughs> now, now listen here, 007. I, I, I welcome. We're coming into Q Branch, but I would encourage you to go further by bringing this tech back in one piece. <laughs> no, Sir Q Starmer KC That's has right. said. Uh, Sir has, Q Starmer Ket and Coke. <laughs> Sir Q Starmer <laughs> Ket and Coke has said. Uh, has said uh, that he's against all of his MPs having second jobs business, even though, of course, what, like, a couple of dozen Labour MPs are landlords. Wasn't he, uh, didn't, he, didn't he try and get a second job and was told <laughs> yes, not did. to by yes. one jam, mysterious jam-liking yeah. informants? Because Jeremy Corbyn hates jobs and doesn't want people to have them, of course. Yeah. No, Keir Starmer <laughs> is actually woke because he recognises that being a landlord isn't a job. Yeah. This, this <laughs> did lead to a fantastic sound where uh, he was confronted about this job that he'd almost taken, but for Corbyn. Uh, and the interviewer said, well, you you were in talks to take a second job. And uh, Keir Starmer went, I wasn't in talks. I was in discussions. <laughs> Why awesome. not? Awesome. Okay, cool. Yes. God yes. damn. I mean, this is just, it, it's, it is an entirely unserious sort of political class. Like, thank God it has no global impact. His <laughs> number is actually, he's not even a me bit anymore. He's an Alex Keeley bit now. Mm. It's a bit in an Alex Keeley show where he's like, ah, will, we, will we call that talk? Yeah. I'm not sure that's it. Well, I think so, we call that a discussion. Oh, oh, oh! If you want, yeah. if you want, Keir Starmer, uh, this mm. is so. This is an MP describing uh, Starmer as the alternative to sort of sleazy Johnson, which again is like not. This is not the valence of politics. Yeah, it's moronic to pretend Starmer. that it is. Um, <laughs> nobody wants to go on the ride at Alton Towers for three days. You end up with a massive headache and being sick. That's Boris Johnson. So Boris Johnson is awesome. Sometimes, <laughs> sometimes, sometimes too much. Hold He's on, too cool. Hold on. Sometimes people just want a cheese and pickle sandwich on a park bench. Keir Starver could be that sandwich and that bench. Yes! It's a oh fuck. It's literally my TikTok. It's the fucking uh, the Labour Party could be that. Oh, what even was it? I can't uh, even yo- remember. It was now. like it was it was that yogurt. If you wanted to try yeah, a different yogurt, <laughs> yogurt. Yeah, that was it. The, the <laughs> Labour Party could be that yogurt. What's really funny is that like Keir Starmer could be that sandwich unless you do a bit of protest. At which point he turns into Ed Two O Nine. Also, he wouldn't be, he, he wouldn't be the bench because you know he would his position would be that like um, yeah he, well his position would sort of I, I reckon it'd be like anti bench on the basis that like it would upset um, you know uh, so upset people in the suburbs who think that it would like lower their homeless. property prices. It'd be like pro anti homeless bench, I think. Yeah, yeah. I think Keir so. Starmer yeah. is the anti homeless architect. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's sat in the middle of the bench, and then you can't sleep on it. Keir Starmer has had an extra handrail added to his midsection so that you can't lie down across it. <laughs> yeah, it's a chastity handrail. Right. <laughs> anyway. so his wife can't molest it's just, it. It's just it's like Keir all- Starmer at a weird angle, so if you try and like sleep on him, you just fall off. I think mm. all of this just has to be understood by the fact that because of there's some something about being a British public figure that makes you completely paranoid and you have to inhabit the minds of other people and then try and act so you approve of yourself as the person you're hallucinating that you are. Mm. And that's why it's very funny to watch them turn themselves in, 
in knots imagining people as benches and attacks that don't happen. Yeah, what and all are people this stuff, like? But cheese and pickle sandwiches? Yeah, benches. I I, I, I hate saying it too because I'm always a little bit self conscious about trying to do English accents. But genuinely, while you were reading that quote, I was like, there's numerous places where you could just drop Lynn in there, and it would be an <laughs> Alan Partridge bit. <laughs> I could be that sandwich, Lynn. People like benches, Lynn. They love them. Look everywhere. Look at him. He's sat on a bench. He's got nothing else going on in his life. <laughs> okay. All right. People love the clothing brand bench. Look, we've 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 nattered on about the news for long enough, uh, and I want to I want to bring things around to our areas of technological interest yeah. before we. Oh speak yeah, we're a at, tech podcast. Uh, this t- this week's startup is called Reliable Robotics. And Phil, as the guest, I would like you to please give us a guess. What's Reliable Robotics do? Uh, well, I'm guessing it's doing something to, with robotics. Um, it's probably right. going to be reliable. Um, give, right. me, give me a second for this. This is, this is kind of one of the most sort of like yeah. vacuous, vacuous names I think I've heard for a tech company yet. So it's pretty difficult to come up with anything kind of particularly inspiring around this. Um, so here's what I'll do. I'm going to give you... I mean, because the name is so vacuous, I'm actually going to also do the first uh, clue. We believe that blank should blank themselves. Uh, Benches should sit on themselves. I don't know, man. Uh (laughs) Hussein, blank should blank themselves. Um, Can you come back to me? I need to have a think about this. Landlords should... (laughs) (laughs) Nick, come on. Blank uh, should blank themselves. Dogs should walk themselves. It's an Eva oh. exoskeleton for your dog to walk itself. <laughs> is, it, is this is this another one of those companies where it's your robot is just a guy? Yes, correct. Oh. Is it um, robots should love themselves? Yeah, it's a robot that jerks <laughs> itself. Robots, yeah. <laughs> the first ever self-sucking robot. <laughs> yeah, we've got we've one step further. We've about the dick-sucking factory and the dick-sucking yeah. robot, but we didn't go that far. It's the machine mm. that turns itself off, but yeah, yeah, you know. uh, yeah. I, I, have, I, ha- I have an idea. I have an idea, um, and it's going to be wrong, but I think it's actually quite funny. Which is that um, they believe that um, dicks should jack like jack themselves off, um, mm. and the reliable robotic is like something that you put on your dick, uh, so yeah, that it's you like don't no have, hands. Yeah. November. So, so, yeah, so you so you don't have to like use your hand to jack off. Oh, the Abu Hams a month. Yes, uh, I think no, that I'm I think afraid. that'd actually be very cool. I'd, I'd be I'm like, afraid I'd it's, it's, it's not uh, one of, a little ring with some hands coming out of it. No. Uh, no. Uh, advanced automation will make blank safer, more affordable, and fundamentally transformative to the way people and goods move uh, around the planet. Sucking it, it from the back. Yeah. I, <sighs> is, it, is, Sorry, it, is it like bikes should ride themselves? No, is it like bigger. a self-propelled uh, car should Trucks drive themselves? Bigger. Planes, planes yes. should fly themselves? Planes should fly oh, themselves. No! Yeah. <laughs> Oh, Why oh, does it's this the need inflatable a autopilot from airplane? Well, it's already autopilot. Like Boeing and Airbus already exist. They already do this shit. Why yeah, do you exactly. need a startup to we've disrupt already this? Cre- we've already got a perfectly rational economy and model for the economy in which planes can fly themselves and will absolutely crash themselves unless you pay for the DLC. <laughs> all right, Boeing patented this. What if you could fly so, inside a drone? So, uh, mm-hmm. the reliable co-founder and CEO Robert Rose said that uh, the funds Ryan's that have recently brother. received. Uh, from uh, Tiger Cub Fund Coa uh, Two Management. So, if you recall, Tiger Global being like the one that's just like opened up a fire hose of money. Um, 
has said that it is going to enable them to continue developing a system designed to deliver cargo across networks of small regional airports in automated complaints remotely controlled by human pilots. Use a train. Use a train. You can't, like, we've got to cut numbers of flights, so flying cargo, which is already wildly inefficient, to smaller... Use a train! But, uh, so, Phil, you're seeing reflections of your book here, I imagine, already. Well, I'm kind of wondering who's going to be training these planes. I mean, you know, if if it's going to be um, oh, recaptures, un- <laughs> it's going to be recaptures. Yeah, un- un- an untrained workforce in the global south, probably. Um, mm. So, yeah, I mean, that's that, it, that, is- that, it. Seems like a recipe for crashes, really, doesn't it? Click all the squares that have a runway in them, <laughs> and please do it quickly. Yeah, you actually, it's a recapture that proves you are a robot. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's, it says it, you need to identify shapes that are that look long and flat from a distance. Uh, make sure the angle is correct. No, please, not those two identical towers. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's uh, which of which of these squares looks like a plane? Which of these squares now looks? Is it more of them? If it's more of them, we have a problem. Yeah. <laughs> Accidentally creating Al Qaeda because no one knows how to land is great. Yeah, yeah. So Al the business, the business, yeah. the business case is simple. Uh, pilots, the most expensive aspects of running a cargo operation. Um, and a lot of it is pretty automated already. And um, in the air, basically, replacing qualified pilots with autonomous systems that can be overridden from the ground means that the cost of each flight goes down and the utilization of aircraft goes up, which is great. It means we're putting a whole class of people out of work, but also a lot more flying, like yeah, tons and, more. And also, you can hijack a plane from the ground now, just like in every movie that came out about computers post 9-11 for about five years. Yeah, if you wanted to live in a Jack Ryan movie that actually had some of its conceits occur... Check it out. A guy in a leather jacket can just skateboard into air traffic control and hijack a plane. <laughs> so this is, I think this is a classic thing. This is a classic element of what you talk about in your book, right, Phil? Where we have an industry that is skilled, where people do entire, where people do whole jobs that are now being broken up into tasks, and uh, which is about sort of taking off and landing, being available only when necessary, being paid only when used. And uh, additionally, uh, uh, training the robot that is making their job worse, right? Exactly. So, I mean, you, you can think about some other professions as well. So, um, a quite a common uh, profession to, keep, to see on micro platforms to be kind of split up into a, a sort of multi- multitude of tasks, which then a crowd of works will do, is translating. So, you'll find, um, for instance, uh, on um, the, the platform uh, Playment, um, they often have translation tasks on there. Um, and basically what this allows sort of companies like Google to do is rather than employ one um, employee with, you know, union access, uh, a decent wage, rights and whatever, is instead you can sort of um, split the job up and then outsource the task to a crowd of workers in the global south who will be doing, yeah, say, five minutes of translation a day each. Yeah, or five minutes of flying. Or five, yes, oh, exactly. Fuck. And sometimes both at the same time. Wait, so the translation is basically the Monty Python sketch about the funniest joke in the world. Mm. Yes. Amazing. Total compartmentalization. Uh, but also, so is the flying. So I would say, if you live in an area between two regional airports, move. Don't. Yeah, don't, move, yeah. don't live there yeah. anymore. Yeah. <laughs> So ultimately, Reliable plans to build out a wholly aerial cargo delivery business and expand operations to include passengers. Great. 
Awesome. So yeah, there's going to be one guy selected probably as a lottery com- or competing with other guys to be the lowest bidder to fly that plane. And you're going to be on it or under it. Awesome. I'd love yeah. to be flown by a guy on Fiverr who's watched like a 12 minute video on how to remote control a plane. I'm sure that they're, mm. come on, I'm sure you have to be a qualified. Also, if the more things get automated, how do you become a qualified pilot? Well, yeah. so something I want to throw out there too is, is that there have been this year exactly. Right, you. successful uh, test flights for electric planes, like electric powered planes. Now they're very small. They're like Piper Cubs and small Cessnas, but the technology is developing. So it's like, in a way, if you were like, hey, we want to, you know, add more efficiency to cargo flights, for example, like maybe that's the technology you could invest in, you could look into like long term. But instead, it feels like we are once again reminded that uh, I don't want to give all the credit in the world to, to 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 one Canadian podcaster, but that it seems like all of these are just like really really nifty wrapping paper arrangements around. Hey, we want to destroy a, a, a job class that has a lot of economic security. Yeah, it's the machine that kills pilots. Anyway, so thanks to Dan Beckner for pointing that out. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and it's 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 called the plane. Yeah, we're just but we're just other- feeding a bunch of pilots into a machine that makes corned beef. A plane can be a machine that sucks you off if you stand in the wrong place at the wrong time. It can be a machine that makes you into corned beef if you're in the wrong place. I was going to say, we actually actually do have a a, a machine that kills pilots. It's called the Boeing 787. Or the helicopter. That's true. The F 35. (laughs) The V 22 Osprey. Yeah. Yeah. Um. (laughs) And also kills people on the ground, to be fair, that one. So that's pretty good. Oh, speaking speaking of um, military applications, uh, in order to help their defense portfolio, they have made a hire. Oh, is it Matt Hancock? Uh, no, no, not no, no defense that matters. <laughs> Noted troop oh. Matt Hancock. Yeah, no, it's it's defense that matters. It's not us. Uh, as director of government solutions, uh, Doctor David O'Brien will engage with the Department of Defense and federal government to identify areas of support for mission success, as well as with universities for research advancement. His multi-industry career extends over thirty-eight years across military, government, and private enterprise. Blah blah blah. Cool. He served the United Air Force in leadership, including as the Director of Acquisition Venture Strategy and Initiatives, where he pioneered multi-domain creative and commercial strategy. He was like the chief imagineer of the Air Force, and they've hired him. Yeah, they, they hired yeah. the Air Force's shingy. Cool. Yeah. They hired they hired the Adam Newman. He's got the, the beret, but he's got like the, the fucking pointy hair underneath it. Yeah. He's he he's the guy that actually came up with uh the F thirty five uh with <laughs> by by imagining a wonderful solution. Uh, I should have hired Master Sergeant Steve Cum. That's true. As, and connected the he he also connected the Air Force with innovative providers and global venture equity investors. And as Major General received the Distinguished Service Medal for I assume uh, startup. So when so when we're withdrawing from uh, the next country that uh, we collectively occupy on no notice and leaving a bunch of people behind, we don't have to use actual pilots in the planes. No. Cool. No, that's right. Okay. Yeah. Uh, instead, it's going to be uh, the uh, hasty, shitty withdrawal, whatever, uh, is going to be uh, piloted by people from that country in refugee camps. Yeah, I hate it when the Taliban volunteer on Fiverr to do all of the flights, <laughs> and then we have no choice but to watch them all turn around and deliver the people we're trying to evacuate oh, back into. Oh, those rascally Taliban. I'm really hoping that, uh, that uh, Ryanair don't get hold of this technology. <laughs> yeah, you find out the person who th- your pilot will be back on the plane, but it's just like 
someone in CF. Yeah, no, you, the pilot is like rotates between you. Yes, <laughs> your flight is being controlled by one of those like urinal games at Weatherspoons that makes you piss oh. in the urinal. <laughs> like, you, like you're d- doing like Flappy Bird with your yeah. dick to like oh, control no, an is. actual passenger it's, flight. Uh, it's Twitch flies uh, to oh. Athens. God damn it! That's yeah. what that is. Uh, so excited we all are about reliable robotics. Oh, so um, excited! But uh, with that as a little sort of amuse bouche, uh, I want to talk a little bit about microwork and your book, Phil. Work without the worker. Um, so before we get into that, I wanted to give some research from Absolute Market Insights, uh, which is a research firm. So in terms of revenue, they estimate the global crowdsourcing market uh, to be about nine and a half billion, projected to reach uh, one hundred and fifty-four. Uh, billion by 2030 with a combined annual uh, average growth rate of 36.5%. It's big. It's becoming. It's it's big now, but it's going to become very, very, very big. So, w- um, what exactly are we talking about here? What is micro work? So, micro work is 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 a kind of crowdsourcing which deals in tiny data tasks. So, so to give a, a, a basic overview for your listeners that aren't familiar with this stuff, um, workers access digital platforms remotely via a, a phone or laptop. Um, and the platforms act as intermediaries between contractors and these workers. And the platforms will take a cut from every transaction between the two parties. Um, the workers are very often from the global south and reside in slums, poor rural areas, maybe cities such as Bangalore and Nairobi, um, and increasingly refugee camps. Um, mm. If they are paid for the work, wage theft is incredibly common on these platforms. They are paid really very little, often as little as sort of 20 cents for a 10 to 15 minute task. Um, and the contractors, um, it should be emphasized, are often big tech companies like Amazon, Facebook, or should I say Meta, um, Google, and Microsoft, or in some cases, maybe sort of smaller startups or marketing companies. Mm. I actually used to do this for a while. Um, I used to do some some copywriting for absolutely zero money on uh, <laughs> on some of these sites, and yeah, no, it is uh, it, it's atrocious. And, and and we think of this right, like what we're actually looking at, and this is from your book, uh, is realizing this world in the labor market. Micro work represents the apex of the neoliberal fantasy: a capitalism without unions, uh, worker culture, and institutions. Indeed, one without a worker capable of troubling capital at all. As if bringing to life capital's fever dreams, microwork undermines not only the wage contract, distinct occupations, and worker knowledge, but the concept of a workforce as a unified antagonistic mass. It is the ultimate neoliberal dream where, and this is me now again. It's, uh, like, where, it's like perfect atomization because it doesn't just isolate mm. you from everybody else. You're actually actively competing against them for jobs. Hmm. And, and the perfect neoliberal fantasy, of course, is one where, what one where you have managed the risk of your employee having downtime between being productive for you. The example of a bartender, where you you wonder when should you pay your bartender if they're doing piecework? Should it be per drink they open? Should it be or, or, and pour into a glass? But maybe they're opening the drink so they can get access to the drink to pour it into the glass. So maybe you should only pay them for when they pour it into the glass. 
But really, what your customer is doing is they're just buying the drink. So maybe you should only pay them when they give the drink to the customer, and so on and so on. Maybe I should and, have a whole F1 pit crew behind this bar, each of whom <laughs> I'm paying pennies to take each individual sort of assembly line <laughs> step in opening this beer. Well, they have to bid against one another. Yes. Yeah. Uh, ideally, they would fight each other, you know, perhaps like try to bite each other, uh, you know, pull yeah. knives, things of that nature. And we'll mostly pay them like half the time. Oh, yeah. So what you're basically saying is the neoliberal bar is an NHS trust? <laughs> so and we talk about this being a particularly neoliberal phenomenon, right? Because we can look at this as the not just sorry, excuse me, not a particularly neoliberal phenomenon, but as as neoliberalism was a reaction to the like relatively aberrant period of um of, of high sort of job stability, high union penetration, relatively high wages of the nineteen sixties and seventies. Um, this was a way to sort of fight against that. So I was wondering, Phil, could you seat this in history for us? So really, we need to we need to go back to the kind of 1970s here, and and the story that I tell I'm in the book. Saying that. <laughs> uh, the story that I tell is kind of one that starts with the historian um, uh, Robert Brenner, who talks about a uh, a kind of protracted crisis of overcapacity that begins yeah in the 1970s, um, which is arguably still with us today. Um, where sort of manufacturing was producing basically just too much to be consumed. So lots of companies started to look for cheaper ways to produce their goods and so outsource their labor to cheaper regions. This pushed a lot of workers in the global north into the service sector where job growth and productivity gains are much slower than in manufacturing. So this ultimately led to a kind of a, a decline in labor demand. And this was happening just as lots of communist and colonized countries were opening up their labor markets. So the global supply of labor expanded as demand for labor dropped. And what, what, what didn't happen and what was predicted was sort of mass unemployment, basically. There was this sort of, you know, this belief by economists in the, in the 1970s and early 80s that we we're going to see mass unemployment, either through automation or, or through these sort of um, the, 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 the crises that were emerging during that period. But actually, that hasn't really happened. What we've seen instead is, is kind of a, a continual downward pressure on wages, worse conditions, insufficient hours, and, and kind of widespread volatility in labor markets, um, which has meant as I, I kind of, you know, as microwork demonstrates, that actually a great deal of quote unquote jobs created in recent years have sort of barely differed from the most abject forms of joblessness. Yeah, more, more bullshit jobs, essentially, right? So I think we, we, we look at this, right? We look at this development. And for something that sort of starts in the 70s, right, and sort of expands as we go along, uh, it's also was crucial to the development of AI, which is seen as this bleeding cutting edge of the future thing, right? But it, as we sort of so often talk about on this show, that again, you peel back the layer, like the great and powerful laws is barely hiding, right? I mean, yeah, as, you, as, as you're pointing out, AI is, is really a bit of an illusion. I mean, it can't learn spontaneously and without supervision. It requires lots of training, basically sort of prodding in the right direction. Um, so, you know, for, for machine learning to function properly, it needs, it needs clean data as an input to, to kind of um, produce sort of relatively precise uh, outputs. And um, what, what workers on microwork sites do is, is basically process this data, um, often by labeling it, sort of transcribing audio, annotating images to show AI, to show AI basically what to do. For instance, you sort of find on microwork sites quite a lot of face tagging tasks. Um, and these will often involve showing an algorithm how to recognize particular sort of facial features, emotions, et cetera. Um, so the kind of, you know, so that facial recognition software can make uh, quote unquote good decisions. 
Um, so you can see you can see here like how the ethics become you know can, can become very ugly considering some micro work is done in refugee camps. You might have refugees training facial recognition cameras that are later used to stop them at the border. Um, you know, it's, 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 the, it's these workers you might describe as sort of the hidden abode of automation that provide consumers or service providers with a, a kind of an automation experience, an illusion that AI is doing this stuff when in fact actually it's a, it's a, it's a kind of ambient workforce in the background. If only there was a T-shirt about that. It's very funny that uh, Am- Amazon, particularly, their micro-work platform is called Mechanical Turk, right? Which is uh, sort of named after a very early example of essentially a-, a fake robot, a scam robot, a robot that like played chess that was just literally just a guy concealed in there moving the pieces. A robot that lusted for Mechanical Vienna. Fuck! Yes! So sorry, me, 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 and, me and Riley had a bet on whether you would make that joke, uh, so I've, I've just yeah. lost Tankwood. <laughs> <laughs> Why would you bet against that, Alex? Thank you. Why? <laughs> <laughs> um, no, so it, it's very, it's like what we can see, right, is what looks like a story of like, you know, Moore's Law or whatever, making technology much more powerful and available, making our Moore's lives better, law. is actually, mm-hmm. is Whoa. actually a massive a oversupply of labor <laughs> sort of working to sort of fulfill these small needs in ways that are completely invisible to us because you put a big gloss over it that says technology. But it's just, it's a story about a transformation of the labor market, not a story about the transformation of technology, well, essentially. Also, also, the surveillance aspect to it isn't uh, solely on the really brutal end of you know training border algorithms. It's also stuff like, I remember when I did this, um, th- like this had absolutely uh, precursors to the kind of modern remote work environment of, oh, we just take a screenshot of your desktop, or oh, we can just see what you're doing all the time. Uh, long before that was common, uh, and it's it's a great test bed for that sort of thing. Absolutely, it's it's it's. I, I've sort of think about this in the book that actually microwork is this kind of um, experimental lab for kind of bad labor conditions, basically. Where you have you have um, as you were just saying, Alice, you have um, the kinds of things that we've seen emerging during the pandemic, starting kind of ten, fifteen years before on platforms like Amazon Mechanical Turk, for instance. Um, another thing that started on there before Uber and Deliveroo had it was rating systems, so scoring workers based on their performance with particular tasks, um, which is now you know becoming common across lots of different companies, not not just the gig economy. It's the, you can see like most things Amazon does, right? It, it's anything that Amazon does for itself is coming for the rest of us at some point. And that's a function of mm. its size and its penetration into every other market, right? So it's just like Amazon Web Services was an internal service that they then commercialized. Um, I, I just like Mechanical Turk was an internal service they built for themselves, then commercialized. And so Bezos's view of what a worker is and does and how the relationship between capital and labor should be mediated is universalizing not just because not like not just because of the sort of large structural forces but simply because when Bezos has an opinion Amazon creates it for itself commercializes it sells it to everyone else and then creates the conditions for the market very very directly there is a relationship between what he wants and what everyone experiences if you think it's not coming for you at some point then I I hope you enjoy your period of uh, comforting illusion. Mm. Um, and I think my favorite phrase in this book is is a Bezosism that you deploy, which is that this is basically artificial artificial intelligence. <laughs> yeah, well, 
Bezos is certainly a cheeky little guy. Um, kind of without meaning to, he's provided the most sinister, inhuman description of microwork you could imagine, really. Um, yeah, as, as we've just been pointing out, workers effectively act as sort of surrogates for proper AI, making our automation fantasy seem s- somewhat real. And it, it's kind of, it's bizarrely meta, this, this, this idea of artificial, artificial intelligence in a way that makes me wonder whether when machines can do the tasks microworkers currently do, whether we'll then be calling automation artificial, artificial, artificial intelligence. It's like, <laughs> where, does, where, where does this end? <laughs> It's also like linked to, it's also kind of like linked to the value of, or like we kind of perceived value of like these tech companies, right? Like so much of their kind of, like so much of like them justifying their existence is on the basis that like they are like not, not only just because of their scale, but because they like uniquely have, they, they, they argue that they have, they uniquely have the technology that, you know, they, you know, things like automation technology uh, like recognition technology, like all these things that, as you've mentioned, like, you know, there are people behind them and those people are like not only being paid nothing, but they're like deliberately being obscured to present this fantasy that like this tech company is far more advanced than like any kind of like government institution or any sort of like state built institution could ever challenge. And therefore like, mm. that's why we should give so much trust and so much like authority to tech billionaires who like, for the most part, I don't think anyone except for like fucking crypto weirdos, like, have anything really that good or benevolent to say about them. So re- I think I, I wondered like how much of this is really, I mean, I don't, even, I don't wonder, I sort of know for sure, like how like a lot of this is very, very like deliberate, but I sort of wonder like how many kind of like external like institutions or governments and stuff are also invested in kind of projecting the fantasy of like technology, com- like the, the, the ideas of progress projected by technology companies in order to kind of like justify allowing them to kind of like retain the power and authority and scale that they have. Oh, you're talking about government institutions. Let's talk about the World Bank, shall we? I've heard of these guys. <laughs> it's, it's yes. the, that's the big bank where they store all of the money. Yes, that's right. It's the it's the money. It's the I'm sure there's a crypto person who thinks that the World Bank is being yeah, it's, challenged. It's a big building with like a Greek portico yeah. out front, and, and they have all of the sacks of gold coins in the basement. Yeah, I think I, I think I borrowed some money from them in order to like pay for a jacket from uh, from uh, from ASOS. <laughs> yeah, uh, you know how so, it has the thing, you know, uh, like three easy payments with the World Bank. <laughs> <laughs> so, Phil, let's talk about how the World Bank has been complicit in. Um, Again, that this the spread of microwork, especially in the global south, and as much as it, yeah, sells this lie about what it is possible to achieve with like this tech-driven neoliberalism, what have you, and also what how what, it, what this lie about how you know and let's say uh, work is sort of so so good for them no matter what its form. Yeah, so so back in the early 2010s, basically the World Bank shifted its sights from microloans to microwork. The idea being that through millions of short tasks, you could somehow give countries in the global south um, hundreds or of thousands of jobs. The problem is that this gets the logic completely back to front. The point of microwork is that you're breaking down larger projects and jobs into short tasks, which never add, you know, never quite add up to a whole. So the idea was kind of doomed from the beginning, really. Um, nevertheless, they sought to push these projects on countries in the global south. So we've seen sort of projects in. Um, in Uganda, in Kenya, um, in bits of North India, uh, and um, also projects that we're going to start in in Palestine as well. 
it, it's it's what what this goes to show, I think, also is the extent to which the 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 high flown sort of uh, uh, globe bestriding uh, liberal institutions and luminaries, journalists, politicians, whatever, love to just think in categories, right? Where job is job, and job is good, and how do you know it's a job? Uh, it's someone pays you for a task. So we need to get more tasks in the hands of people in the global south because right now they don't have enough tasks. Yeah, a job is the same thing as a career, and so consequently you can be like, oh yeah, I, I did like uh, translation for like you know cents an hour uh, for twenty years, man and boy, and you know uh, as such it really gave me this work ethic, right? <laughs> I was a mechanical Turk, and my father was a mechanical <laughs> Turk, and while you're under my roof, you're a mechanical Turk. <laughs> I mean, but there have been some completely bizarre boosterish claims made by the World Bank that this uh, form of labor, which demonstrably ends up paying you less, is the farthest thing possible from even developing any skills. Like the literal worst end of a piecework employment contract, a Victorian employment standard is somehow good because it causes a profusion of these things called jobs mm. in the global South, right? Yeah. I mean, the, the World Bank claimed in one of their, um, one of the, I think it was a blog post actually, not one of the reports that. Um, <laughs> that microwork could boost the income of people in the global south by forty thousand dollars. I mean, I, I have absolutely uh, no idea where they took this figure from. Oh, I have an idea. I think they might have paid someone twenty cents to write uh, the, that article <laughs> sentence by sentence. I think there's a there's a good chance that that's where it came from. Um, you know, but, but considering the average task pays, like as you were saying, only go twenty to thirty cents for around fifteen to twenty minutes work. I think you'd have to work more hours than there are in a year to make forty thousand dollars. It's it's like, oh yeah, it's 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 yeah. I mean, it's it's basically a, it's a lie. Basically, I mean, it's it's nothing more than a lie. But if you set up a shell company and then get people to do like multiple tasks for you and pay them less, then maybe you could you could run yeah you could you could kind of like run a mechanical tech within a mechanical tech. Oh, so saying what you're proposing is what if you set up a company? Where you took contracts from those microwork sites, maybe in bulk, and so you fulfilled those contracts all in bulk. So maybe you paid, I don't know, eighty cents on the dollar for them, yeah. and then maybe you had a platform where other people could log into your site, complete those tasks for you as well. Yeah, I've been watching a lot of like Gary V videos on YouTube recently, um, and I have some <laughs> business ideas. I think uh, we've disrupted microwork by creating like, a microwork platform. G Gary V for Vendetta. <laughs> there was something I will, I will, I will. Vengeful Gary V. I wanted to point this out because this is just a useful example. It's not necessarily like like uh, piecework, but I think it's an example of sort of these kinds of um, the ways in which this is, applies downward pressure or at least uh, what the actual motivation is. And that is... Um, just happen to be familiar with this because of some of the stories of people who were, you know, seeking evacuation from Afghanistan when Kabul fell, you know, far faster than people thought it was going to. And there, are, um, I'm an American citizen. There are a number of people who were American green green card holder holders, green card holders who were, uh, uh, who suddenly were like, oh, you know, fuck, I'm trying to get back to America. And in some cases, U.S. citizens who were um, Afghan American. And one of the reasons for this was that um, it, if you are an Afghan citizen, an Afghan national. And you got a contract to be an interpreter for the U.S. military, the Afghan government, the U.S. government, et cetera. Typically, the rate you would be getting paid is around 120 to 150 dollars a month. 
So very, very little. No, no, that would be a competitive salary in some fields in Afghanistan, but it would not be obviously by American standards. That's that's a pittance. That's 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 you know, far, far, far below minimum wage. Uh, however, if like you a British salary. <laughs> however, if you were uh, if you were a U.S. citizen or um, even a permanent resident, there was a higher class of interpreter. When you would do the same exact job, but you would be offered salaries in and around one hundred and twenty thousand dollars a year. And if you were a U.S. citizen. And you were able to successfully complete a secret clearance. the The offers for the same translation job would be anywhere from two hundred to three hundred thousand dollars a year. And obviously, the skill set is no different. The interpreter does the same role, no matter what. the The one gradation there is the security clearance, but in most cases, that was pretty rare. So, in most cases, it was just, "Are you an American citizen or not?" And the reason I bring this up is just because it shows this example that, like, the work is the same. It's just that the person who has the green card has an option to go somewhere else and get higher wages. And so all of a sudden, we realize the work is actually apparently that valuable. But because they don't have to, because nothing is obligating them for, to uh, to pay people anything more than you know the equivalent of two thousand dollars a year, that's how much they'll pay them. And for the same work, oftentimes even more dangerous for the people who are Afghan nationals. And so it's just a reminder that given the opportunity, no matter like the the really, really like, call it ethical or inspirational or sort of like grandiose uh, rhetoric here about like, oh, well, this is going to be such a huge cash infusion to the developing world. Well, it's like, no, it's, it's just, there's no minimum wage. There's no wage standards. Like you basically, to me, when you, when you said that, Phil, I thought the first thing that came to mind was, Oh yeah, well this could be forty thousand dollars a year of income. But it's like actually no. I imagine the people who are going to be profiting off this look at it and be like, well, those people would live on a dollar a day anyway. So who, you know, why not pay them a dollar fifty a day? And now I'm the world's biggest philanthropist. Yeah, and I, what what I found particularly funny about the American translator rates is you just know that the translation rates for like the British were paying the Afghans exactly the same the Americans were paying, if not less. But that the British citizens who were translators were probably getting twenty six k a year plus a two hundred pound Marks and Spencer's voucher as like a signing bonus. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, uh, I want I want to go back to this a little bit. Uh, Phil, tell me about M two work. So M2 Work was a project set up by the World Bank um, back in the early 2010s, which is one of its many dubious endeavors sought to bring microwork to unemployed Palestinian youth. Um, there's not very much info out there on this particular project, unsurprisingly. So I don't know whether it ever properly got off the ground, um, but it gives you a sense of the kinds of projects they run elsewhere. Um so actually, it's, it, to kind of understand M2 Work, you have to go back to a company called SAMA, um, which operates under the dubious slogan of give work, not aid. Um, and they were basically the first of these, these um, quote unquote, impact sourcing companies that, um, um, as we were just pointing out a minute ago, basically would you know, make themselves look like the best philanthropists in the world. By going into refugee camps and offering, yeah, one dollar fifty rather than one dollar an hour for 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 people to do, um, you know, this kind of work. Give 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 work not aid. Literally, just sounds like they hired Don Draper to rephrase. Are there no workhouses? Look, like it you, genuinely, yeah. If you give a man a Turk, he'll eat for a day. But if you <laughs> teach that man to be a mechanical Turk, he could probably afford to day. eat once a month. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. for a day. Also, yeah. Um, but also, the that's, that's so fucking insulting. It's like give work, not aid. Well, what the fuck were these people doing before before we showed up? Yeah. Well, they were just lazy. Oh man, like the this, it's so fucking insulting. The idea that that what the people in the developing world need 
in country in, in either in, in middle income countries or in countries where lots of people are subsistence farmers, or whatever, is tasks mm. is fucking insulting. We could make this more annoying though, because uh, what if we called them quests? And what if we <laughs> gave you a little like experience bar? What if that? What what is what is your one sustenance giving meal of the day but a loot box? Yeah, that's that's where it's going. It's so, tr- wa- tr- watch this. Someone is going to like build something on the Solana blockchain, maybe like yep. one of the Ethereum killer blockchains, and they are going to say you if, in exchange for performing sort of some or another. You know, you know what it's going to be? It, they're going to say we've we've defeated the proof of work blockchain thing, right? We've defeated that requirement that causes all the pollution. And what we've instead done is every is, is we've just hired people in the global south to work out the, the hash by hand. Yeah, using an abacus. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah uh, it's just you're doing complex cryptography by hand, and for every one that you do, you verify the ledger, you get a little token, and you can use that token to buy a food loot box. It's just like regretting my decision to go the, to the Dadaab refugee camp and on the Kenya Somalia border and tell people that actually this bored ape smoking a joint will be worth twenty times their annual income in at least one year, and I'm immediately <laughs> killed once it's been translated. <laughs> <laughs> right, and so it's it just I mean, look, it's. Let's not give ourselves. I don't think anyone on on or listening to this show had any illusions about the uh, World Bank and its nature to decolonize countries. But what I think is so striking about all of the micro work Global South projects is you're basically say, we are we is it's it's the false benevolence of of asking someone to of saying hey, I'm going to do you the favor of building this stick, which I'm then going to beat you with because otherwise you'd be too lazy to do it yourself. Hmm. I mean, it's the, the 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 other problem here is it becomes even if it doesn't mean to an ideological justification for maintaining the camps themselves. So you can turn these camps into you know uh, sort of relatively innovation well, hubs, innovation hubs, relatively well functioning labor it's market, a business park. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, and that's yeah, that's that's, right. that's kind of what you know. That's kind of what you can see coming out of this is something not dissimilar to kind of almost like a, a refugee industrial complex. You know, I, I'm reminded of something, and 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 this is just like I I, I realize that you know choose my words very carefully because I don't want this to sound um, like I'm endorsing this position. But I recall something that um, when Hillary Clinton's emails got leaked in 2016, there was one in particular that uh, I believe it was oh, her emails, or it might have or it might have been a speech that she had given, like a private speech she'd given at Goldman Sachs. I can't remember, but it was something along the lines that the American right wing jumped upon this to make a huge point to go, you know. Completely wrongheadedly, like this was this was just a kind of conspiracy theory thing. But what she had basically said was, you know, I foresee uh, a future of open borders for capital. Mm-hmm. And they 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 read that as open borders. Like, look, Hillary Clinton wants open borders. You know, the same kind of like ethno nationalist shit that we we deal with here in the UK as well. Um, but to me, it's when you, you hear these stories, like that seems like the logical follow up to that. That if 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 the goal is hard borders for humans and completely open borders for all capital, then why not make the refugee camp into a job park? You know, why not why not outsource it to find the absolute bottom dollar you can pay for services that are a for profit that are driving profits for some of the most profitable ventures in human history, but also that are providing services that you would legally be required to pay another person in even a middle income country, you know, 10 times, 20 times as much for the same task if they were working there like that. It just seems like that is the I I don't want to say that the terminal end point like the terminal point of this logic but it seems like that's somewhere along the way the idea that like well we've got all this uh the, all this captive labor we can underpay to an insulting degree why not have them 
perform these tasks that uh, we haven't been smart enough to figure out a, a way to make a computer do successfully. And it's just, it's just very, very grim. It's a good thing we're not doing anything that might create a shitload more refugees in the near future. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Indeed. I, but I'm noticing we're going a little long, but I have a few more things I want to talk about, right? Mm. Number one is like moving from... We Machine sort of talked sucked about, you off, yes. Yeah, we've, we've <laughs> talked about the history, and we talked about sort of the capital, and we've given an idea of who it is doing these jobs. It tends to be people in the Global South and favelas and refugee camps. It also tends to be people, by the way, in the Global North in prisons. Just anyone who is stuck in a place and cannot get out uh, or cannot access all of their rights, this is what they're given to do. But I want to talk about the commodity itself and attack this idea that automation destroys jobs. Because I think it's, as you write in the book, it's slightly wrongheaded for reasons that I agree with. And number one, I think a lot of this sort of uh, comforting stories that we tell ourselves about AI is sort of like uh, the data side of commodity fetishism, right? Where with, the commod- with commodity fetishism, you look at a table and you see a table. You pay a certain amount of money for the table. It obscures all of the relationships of domination that go into the production of that table. You just say, ah, you have it. I want it. It's there. Its value is innate, of course. There is no labor has gone into it that was not exploited anyway, etc. Com- data fetishism, I think, is something of the same. Where when you see the... The wonderful, uh, you know, robot arm point to which one, well, which of the two things is paint and which of the two things is wire, right? You see that, and um, you say, "Oh, what a what a wonderful thing that just arose by itself." Like, do you think that there's a similar process of fetishization going on there? I mean, absolutely. Yeah, data fetishism is is really just a kind of expression of commodity fetishism, as you just said. Um, the difference being, I suppose, that that with uh, t- tangible commodities. Um, it's easier to it's easier to get a sense of the fact that it was produced by labor in the sense that you know you can look at you can look at something and you know think about the tailor that made the shirt with data it's not so easy because it's this intangible thing you don't really tend to sort of think of it as being created um so for instance we experience like our, our facebook feeds um as if sort of violent and pornographic content have been wiped away automatically. It's just it's just sort of happened. When in fact, actually, it's a content moderator. Or we experience Google search as if an alphabet algorithm has you know has ranked our personal searches. When in fact, actually, it relies on huge numbers of you know poorly paid workers to do the ran- ranking. I mean, basically, look at any sort of smart object, and there will be some ambient labor beneath the experience making it operate smoothly. Mm, of course, there are a bunch of people somewhere somewhere in Africa who are like ordering Alice's search preferences <laughs> and, and just trying to just decode. very confused. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> just on that note too, I think like also you know, on 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 that point, like what's also interesting or like what's kind of worthy of noting is that like the um, not only the obfus- obfuscation of this work or of these workers, but even kind of the con- concealment of this as kind of work that well, kind of something that is labor. And in doing so, like demeaning or uh, it's a bit late, so I can't like my kind of words are tangled up. But I guess what I mean is the kind of like devaluing of that labor uh, is kind of like designed to kind of perpetuate those myths that we tell ourselves about like that, like parts of society tell themselves about like AI and kind of like the kind of ongoing progress of technology. And again, kind of like these justifications being used to relinquish more power to these big tech companies on the basis that like they are the only people, well, they are the only institutions that like can 
you know, to take take it to its logical conclude to its logical conclusion, um, they are the only institutions that can actually like ensure the survival of the human race. Like we kind of like so much importance is implanted onto them, and like so much of that importance, like that importance attributed to them, are, is like dependent on this form of labor being devalued and kind of just concealed from like general public view. Yeah, people and, and talk oh, about the Eva units, but we don't, you know, recognize that there's a guy in there. <laughs> <laughs> so, look, I heard, I heard a, a particularly strange story, story the other day, actually. Um, that apparently, the manager of Travis Scott, the rapper, uh, recently claimed that to boost Travis Scott's online streams, he would hire a mechanical Turk worker to create fake Gmail accounts, sort of like ultimately giving him the ability, to, in his words, deploy virtual machines. Um, and inflate the streams of particular Travis Scott songs. So he like generated tens of thousands of fake streams. And this is go- this has been going on for years, but this is a particularly particularly ridiculous example of it. I was really hoping you were going to say that Travis Scott's manager was a mechanical. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I mean, yeah, like you're right. This this absolutely happens, and like this is kind of like it's it's not like a secret in the music industry, and like clearly then it also sort of elucidates that the like the the kind of like the more uh, successful you are as an artist, which like often is like linked to how well you perform on platforms. Um, generally like and how well like the or like what type like how the algorithm like interacts with you i don't really want to say but like how well you interact with the algorithm because i think that's like a different conversation about like what it actually is but it kind of like really reflects the idea that if you are like you know one of the more successful like musical artists or like any type of like creator or whatever like you can kind of use that to your advantage uh but at the same time you can also like attribute that to like organic or natural growth like quite often like it's quite surprising how many kind of are like of like of these artists and celebrities have no idea like how their actual like infrastructure like popularity infrastructure is actually built especially like new celebrities who kind of have come up on like tiktok and other platforms I, th- I think maybe the platform should start sort of like, you know, adver- advertising themselves of like, yeah, you, yeah the, you might not get paid for your work, but you might get to indirectly work for Travis Scott. <laughs> and you can tell people that. You can tell people, I work no, for you, Travis Scott well, hitting the stream now, button. Because now that means that you work, now, but now that means that you're in servitude to Satan. So <laughs> Travis Scott is like, managed by an like, entire chill. village in Indonesia who are just like basically all co-parenting Travis Scott. <laughs> <laughs> so, I, I want to I get to one, one more thing, right? Which is you talk about this idea of data fetishism as the same thing as commodity fetishism. You can sort in the same way, I think when people talk about technology or automation destroying jobs, they talk about it in terms, in a similarly fetishistic terms, right? Where uh, there, is these, there is this job, it gets replaced by an algorithm or a machine or whatever. When in fact, what actually happens and what you see when you look at microwork is jobs get carved up uh, from existing jobs, as we've talked about at the beginning, get carved up into little tasks, right? Yeah, your F1 and, pit crew making you that bit. Yeah. And that there is that there is this, as you say in the book, the, a disjuncture between the ever slowing rate of job creation and the ever more rapidly expanding pool of workers who are dependent on wages. And as stagnant growth infects the global system, workers are pushed into more precarious and petty service work, which capital turns into commodification of data and speculative investments in AI futures, which are basically only going to further expedite people being superfluous. And it's not that people are pushed out of work, it's that they are elbowed to the side, right? That, that man- management capital is able to use mecha- automation not to replace your job, but to control you and more and to basically push you out of center stage in it. 
so that all of a sudden your job is no longer your job. It becomes a place where you fight for survival. It's yeah, still, and it you is get, still you get a job to do to that have. in like a dormitory, you know. Yeah. Right. And and so it is the work is not replaced. It's informalized. It's br- it's broken up. It's more and more surveilled. It's more exploitative. Exactly. Yeah. So 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 in the book, um, I, I use um, a term from a sociologist called Jan Bremen, who's who studied um it's sort of the informal economy in in um in India. And he has this term wage hunter gatherers. Um, and these are basically, you know, the, the large proportion of workers around the globe uh, could be described as this. They're basically people that, you know, live by walking sort of goods, maybe selling tissues on trains, cleaning the houses of the rich, picking up rubbish and recycling, um, and will often spend more of their time hunting for work than actually doing paid work. So, you know, doing a vast number of jobs over the course, the course of a day for like multiple contractors. So in the book, what I'm sort of saying is that the microworker is like the digital equivalent of this, basically. They, they, they sort of reside in the same places. They're in slums, they're in camps, they're in prisons, maybe they're in occupied territories. Um, and they don't have anything that even resembles a job. They move from, you know, petty digital task to petty digital task. Um, it's, 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 as you said, said, Riley, it's informality, but with a kind of glossy kind of Silicon Valley sheen to it. Anyway, we're very excited to welcome our new host, uh, Dave in Wormwood Scrubs. He's <laughs> uh, getting a very competitive and, rate. And ultimately, a lot of what they're looking for, just to finish it off, it's not even the performance of the task. It's so that they can look at how the task is performed, but the task itself becomes the product that is used to further casualize and, um, uh, and surveil and uh, essentially just decenter the human in the main part of what a human life is. For most people who have are who are just there because of history, effectively. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, I mean, Google and Facebook, for instance, have made it clear. I mean, very clear that they want to automate their moderators and, and raters. Um, Mechanical Turk has some seriously sinister small print in its terms and conditions um, that says that something something to the effect of that the, the content of each task can be used to support its own machine learning. And um, so, very often, it would seem that the platforms want data about how to do the very tasks that the workers are currently doing. So in essence, the workers are directly automating their own jobs away. So you kind of find this further twist in, in surplus populations or what Mike Davis has called surplus humanity, where um, now sort of surplus populations are directly being forced to make the little bit of work that they've got surplus and the, the, the jobs of other people. And I think it, it, it sort of... Just by, by way of wrapping up, right, I think it, it sh- you'd have to be naive to say none of this AI and automation stuff will ever work. It works a little bit sometimes, but what's very clear is that the human, human labor will never go away, right? And that a lot, of how, a lot of automation, it matters how it's deployed because it can be deployed in a way that is uh, emancipatory. It can. But it will never be deployed by capital in a way that is emancipatory. You're never going to see that happen ever. But you, you, there, automation is going to continue to happen. It's going to, it's going to march on. And you know, I think uh, it just it goes to show that the uh, smartest group of um, of 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 people that uh, ever existed were the Luddites. Hmm. You know, if 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 a tech who didn't say don't develop technology, who rather said. If a piece of technology does not serve the interests of humanity, it ought not to exist, quite simply. Anyway, 
Uh, I think that is probably uh, a little bit enough for today. So I just want to say, number one, Phil, thank you very much for coming and hanging out with us today. It has been a blast to talk to you. Thank you very much for having me. I've had a great time. Yeah, and it's been a real pick me up. I feel invigorated. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, sorry about where, that. Uh, <laughs> where can people yeah. find uh, your book? Should they want to read it on a uh, train, or perhaps they're on a remotely controlled plane? Yeah, or pay a child <laughs> to read it uh, somewhere in Africa. <laughs> so I'd, I'd, I'd encourage you not to buy it from Amazon and go directly to Verso. Um, that's that's the that's yeah that's my one bit of advice for buying the book. Okay, you heard it here. For, you heard it here first. Go to uh, Versus On, and we will uh, we will link to that in the show notes at Verso mm. and not Versus On or yes. Amaverse. <laughs> That's right. Um, anyway, I think all that remains to be said is to say once again, thank you very much, Phil, for coming on. Thank you, the listener, for listening, and don't forget, you, the listener, we have a Patreon. There's a second episode every week. It is five simple dollars a month. And if this isn't enough to tempt you, we have been getting a lot of of listener uh, uh, messages of people who have experience at working at some companies that we've talked about recently. And we'll be talking a little bit about those on the bonus episode. Yeah. Also, my tour this month, uh, 23rd, Birmingham, 24th, Liverpool, 25th, Manchester, now sold out. If you're in Manchester, you have you officially missed out on MILF series and the 26th in Nottingham. Uh, Birmingham's quite close to sold out. So is it get called voicemail? It's not called MILF theories. No, it's not called MILF theories. That's just a joke about there's MILF theories in the show. It doesn't, it doesn't matter, Riley. It's, it's okay. If there's MILF theories in it, why do you call it MILF theories? Why do you, is it about voicemail as much as MILF theories? That's quite, that's, a voicemail is like a key. Look, <laughs> let's, not, let's not get into this. If you, if you want to find out, come to the fucking show. I'm not giving you this for free. I'm not letting Riley Paxman me out of the reveals of the show. <laughs> <laughs> all right, all right. Bye, everybody. Bye. 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 Bye.